Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 4, and then we'll actually look at three different texts as part of our sermon today. Thank you to James. Thank you to our praise team members and our instrumentalists for a wonderful time of worship this morning. As most of you know, uh, our regular diet here at Selmore is to preach through books of the Bible expositionally, which means chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We believe that there is great value in that approach. Uh, For instance, we've been going through the book of Hebrews this calendar year. We started way back in January, and it's hard to believe that we've already been at it for six months. I don't know if you realize this, but we are over halfway through 2021, and that just is crazy in my mind. But from time to time, it's good to take a little break, I think, from a sermon series and hear an occasional topical sermon. And with it being the 4th of July, I thought it would be a good time for us to push pause on Hebrews for one Sunday and discuss instead what I'm entitling the duties of a Christian citizen. And today we're going to look at five such duties. For many of you, these principles will not be something that you've never heard before, but it's good for us to be reminded of what God expects from us as Christ followers in terms of our duty to the earthly government that God has placed over us. So we're going to jump right into it. We're going to look, as I said, at three different biblical texts this morning, and we will begin with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now here's our first duty as a Christian citizen that we see in those verses, and that is to pray. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to pray for our nation and specifically for its leaders. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that we are to offer supplications for our leaders, which is to say that we are to pray for their specific needs. For instance, we can pray for their salvation. We can pray for wisdom, for health, for protection. We can pray for them to receive and be open to godly counsel, etc. Paul also says that we are to make intercessions for our leaders. Now, the term intercession does not refer so much to the content of our prayer as it does the means of prayer. The Greek word for intercession carries with it the idea of coming alongside someone and drawing near to them. And so in intercession, the picture is that we come alongside God in prayer and we draw near to him, asking him to place his hand on the party, to touch the party for whom we are praying. One man has said that intercession is placing one hand on God and one hand on the person for whom we are praying. And I like that picture. This passage is commanding us to pray in this way, intercessory prayers for our nation and its leaders. Paul also says in verse 1 that we are to give thanks for all men. Did you catch that? All 
men, specifically kings and all who are in authority. Now, in America, we have no king but Jesus. That is one of the battle cries of the American Revolution. We have no king but Jesus. However, we do have individuals in authority over us. In America, this would be our president, our vice president, our legislators, our justices, etc. Now, if you're like me, your first thought upon reading that may be, how do I give thanks for a leader when I have very little respect for their beliefs? How do I give thanks for a leader who is ungodly in many of his behaviors and unbiblical in many of his policies? Admittedly, the command to give thanks can be tougher for some leaders than others. But even when our leader is a person for whom we have very little respect, we still are commanded to pray for them and to give thanks for them. We believe that the emperor of Rome at the time that Paul wrote these words to Timothy was Nero, one of the most wicked men in the history of the world who persecuted and killed Christians. How could Paul tell these believers to give thanks for Nero? It just goes to show that even in bad leaders, there are things for which we can be thankful. Even bad leaders make good decisions sometimes. And when they do, we should give thanks to God both for the leader and for God's grace in bringing about good through an imperfect and sometimes a wicked vessel. I know a man who keeps a prayer folder. This is his method of intercessory prayer, just a little manila folder. And he loves putting pictures in his folder of people that he is praying for. And every morning he opens up his folder, every morning, and he just flips through those pictures. And as he sees pictures of people that he's praying for, he prays for them. He intercedes for them. Um, One thing that he does in this prayer folder is put a picture of the president and vice president of the United States. He literally does this. And so when President Trump and Vice President Pence were in office, he literally had a picture of them in his folder. I saw it one time. And that reminded him to pray for them daily. And then when they left office and President Biden and Vice President Harris took office, he replaced the picture of President Trump and Vice President Pence with a picture of them. And now he prays for them every day. Did he vote for them? I'm guessing not. But does he pray for them with supplications and intercessions and giving of thanks? Yes. Why? Because it is, it is his Christian duty to do so. And it is ours as well. This passage lists three good things that happen when God's people pray for their leaders. First, it says in verse two that it allows us to lead a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and reverence. In other words, when we pray for our leaders and they in turn make good and godly decisions, it makes our lives better. That's incentive to pray. It allows us to live free, free to worship God as we choose, free to love our families, free to live our lives without interference. And as a side note, do observe that the biblical depiction of an ideal life in verse 2 is quiet and peaceable, not noisy and busy. Can I get an amen on that? That's the, the biblical picture of a good life. Second, it says that we please God when we do so. 
Verse three says, it's good and acceptable to God when we pray for our leaders. And so that reason alone is enough to do it. It pleases our father and we should want to always please him, amen? Third, the implication of verse four is that some of our leaders may come to know Christ, may come to be saved through the prayers of God's people. Why should we pray for the salvation of our leaders? Because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Think about that. How awesome would it be if one of our national leaders did an interview one day and came out and said, I have become a follower of Jesus Christ and that will profoundly impact the way I govern going forward. We have to pray for our leaders with faith, believing that could happen. God can save anyone, anytime. There are multiple examples in scripture of God turning the hearts of kings toward him. He did it then and he can do it again. And that is what we must pray for. Again, it's our duty as Christians to pray for our nation and its leaders. We don't have to vote for them. We don't have to support their policies. We don't have to particularly like them, but we do have to respect them as people created in the image of God. We need to respect their office and we need to pray for them as we are commanded to do in this passage. I want to challenge you on this 4th of July and challenge myself too to begin making prayer for our nation and its leaders a regular part of your prayer life. Whether you have a prayer folder or just a little sticky note on your bathroom mirror that says, pray for the USA or some other reminder, that is our Christian duty. All right, now, if you would, let's turn back to the book of Romans. We're gonna move on to our second text. We're going to look at some verses in Romans chapter 13, starting with verses one through two. Here's what these verses say. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves." Our second duty as a Christian citizen is to obey. When the Apostle Paul says for every soul to be subject to the governing authorities, he is using very strong and direct language. The Greek word for quote unquote be subject to was a military term that referred to absolute obedience. Paul is calling us very clearly to obey the governing authorities. Now, I think this principle can be hard for us to hear, particularly in this country and particularly in this part of the country. America was founded 245 years ago today by declaring its independence from Great Britain. We are an independent people. It is in our DNA, and I think that is even more true in the Ozarks. And an independent spirit can be a good thing in many ways. But if we allow our independent spirit to cross over into disobedience, 
We are in sin and we are in rebellion against God. And so what I'm about to say, please listen carefully. The only time in which a Christian should not obey the law of the land is when that law comes into direct conflict with the word of God. In all other cases, not to obey earthly authority is sin. We see an example of this exception in Acts chapter 5. Peter and the other apostles are commanded by the religious authorities not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet they continue. When they're arrested and asked about this, the leaders said, we told you not to teach in his name. Why are you still doing this? And their response was, as many of you know, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, what's the principle there? If earthly authorities tell us to do anything in contradiction of what God has told us to do, they are outside the bounds of their authority. No earthly office has the right to overrule God. And when an earthly authority does command us to do something in contradiction of God's word, we are duty-bound as Christ followers to disobey it and to oppose it. Now, I would temper that by saying, I think that there are very few things that actually fall into that category. For instance, when an earthly government singles out the church to restrict its gatherings while allowing other similar gatherings to continue, as we have seen in some cases during this pandemic, that is a violation of God's command to gather, to assemble. When an earthly government tells Christians they cannot preach in the name of Jesus, or tells them that they cannot teach what the Bible clearly says about certain cultural issues, those laws are unjust and they are ungodly and they should not be obeyed. We must obey God rather than man. However, we must also be careful not to put things into that category just because we don't want to do them and just because we don't like them. There are a lot of laws I don't particularly like or agree with, but that does not mean that they are directly unbiblical. And so as a Christian, I have no choice if I'm to be in obedience to my father to obey the authority that he has placed over me. Again, other than the one exception of the earthly authority asking us to do something that contradicts God's word, to not obey the law, to refuse to be subject to the governing authorities is sin. Why is that the case? Verse 1 tells us the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, in verse 2, when we resist their authority, we rebel against God himself and we bring judgment upon ourselves. Well, let's move on to the third point today. We're, to do that, we're going to move all the way down to verses 6 and 7 now. This will be a real popular point. I'll just give you a, a warning already, okay? For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Our third duty as Christian citizens, as hard as it is for me to say this, is to pay. 
to pay. According to this passage, one of our duties as Christian citizens is to pay our taxes. Now, let me say this. We could all share our opinions on this matter and have a huge impassioned discussion on how much tax that we should pay (laughs) and how our tax dollars are used. And I think many of us would say, speaking in generalities, that taxes are too high and our government does not steward our taxes well in many cases. However, let's set that aside for a moment, that sentiment, and just consider the basic principle that we see in this passage Verse 6 says we pay taxes to our earthly government because the authorities are God's ministers. Not my words, that's the Bible's words. God's ministers attending to us. That is to say God has appointed earthly governments to attend continually to their citizens. Now, this does not mean that it is the government's job to provide for all of our needs. I would hope that we would all agree on that. But it does mean that it is the government's job to provide a basic framework and infrastructure for men under its authority to live free and to flourish. For instance, government has a duty to protect society from evil. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 13. Evil both from within its own borders and outside its borders. In addition, government provides roads and bridges and public utilities and essential services and a common currency. And yes, at its best, it provides a hand up, not a hand out to those in legitimate need. And that principle goes all the way back to the Old Testament. That is a biblical principle. But in these ways and more, governments are God's ministers to us. He has placed governments over us to provide protection, stability, and order in society. As such, it is a good and righteous thing for us to render our taxes. Again, I say that as a general biblical principle and not an endorsement necessarily, of our nation's tax laws. So to say that our tax system should be different, to make the case that it should be improved, yeah, sure, I'll I'll agree with that all day long. But according to the Bible, it is not unreasonable, nor is it sinful that earthly governments should ask their citizens to do their just part, to pay their fair share, to support the government's God-given ministry God-given assignment to them. Jesus himself said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Finally, you will notice in verse seven, not only are we to pay taxes to the authority, but also customs, which could be rendered as tolls. And then most importantly, we are to pay fear, which is respect. And we are to pay honor to our authorities as well. All right, let's turn over to our last passage for our final two points. I hope that you're still with me. No one wants to throw food or fruit or vegetables at me or anything like that. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. This will be our last text this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Here's what these verses say. 
You, Jesus speaking, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is in good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. All right, from this text, we're going to pull out our fourth and fifth duties. And our fourth duty, because I am a cheesy pastor and I like to rhyme, our fourth duty is to prevent decay. In this famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers that they are to be salt and light in the world. So let's start by talking about salt. When we think of salt today, we primarily think about adding it for flavor. We also think of it as something we shouldn't use a whole lot of if we want to be healthy. Some of you will put salt on your watermelon today. And I will pray for you in that because salt should never go on watermelon. I just had to put that in there. Certainly salt was used in Jesus' day for flavoring and seasoning as well. But as many commentators tell us, the primary use of salt in Jesus' day, and probably what he's really getting at here, is that salt is a preservative. It keeps things fresh. For instance, if they wanted to preserve uh, meat or, or fish, they'd salt it down really good, and that salt would keep bacteria from growing on that meat where they could eat it longer. Listen, one of our duties as Christian citizens is to be salt to our culture, thereby preventing or heading off the spiritual and moral decay of our nation. How do we do that? Well, first of all, I would say this. The very fact that the Holy Spirit of God resides in you as a Christian is a natural suppressant to wicked and evil, to wickedness and evil. If we had any idea how much the very presence of the Holy Spirit in this world keeps evil at bay, I'm convinced it would both horrify us and make us very appreciative of the Holy Spirit's restraining work. So I believe in one sense, you as a Christian, you as a temple of the Holy Spirit, just being present in your neighborhood, in your school, in your place of work, just your presence prevents spiritual decay to some extent from taking place, or at least, at the very least, slows it down. But we need to do more than just show up too, right? To truly be salt to our culture, we need to be proactive. And how do we know what to do? Well, I think it can be summed up very well in the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you make a practice of publicly demonstrating your love for God and publicly exercising love for your neighbor, that is to say love for people in your path in little ways every single day, you will be salt to your community, to your school, to your workplace, and to your nation. And then the fifth duty that we take from this text, the fifth duty of a Christian citizen is to light the way. Verse 14 says that we are to be a city on a hill, not a light hidden under a basket, but shining forth for all men to see that they may glorify our Father in heaven. How do we shine forth the light of Jesus? Well, I think we can summarize that this way. 
by carrying out the great commission, by going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all the things that Christ has commanded us. Folks, it's really, in one way, very simple. If we want to change our nation, we must share the gospel. Only the light of Jesus can change people's hearts. I think one thing that we're really bad about as Christians sometimes, I know that I'm guilty of this, is sitting around and lamenting the state of our nation, but doing nothing to actually address the problem. What our nation ultimately needs to address our problems is not better laws, not even better leaders, although those things are good, but ultimately what we need is the Lord. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need an awakening to spread across our land. America is no longer a Christian nation. I think that we have to acknowledge that and come to grips with that. We are in many ways a pagan nation. We are far, far from the Lord. And the only thing that will change that is for Christians to share the gospel, to make disciples of Jesus, to teach people the ways of Jesus and for them in turn to teach others. It is our Christian duty to our nation to obey the great commission. It is our Christian duty to our nation to light the way by showing forth the light of Jesus Christ. As we wrap this up this morning and we come to a time of response, it should be the desire of every Christ follower here this morning to be a good and godly citizen of America. We are blessed tremendously by God to live in this great country. But it is also important to recognize that our most important citizenship, our most important identity is not that we're American. Our most important citizenship, our most important identity is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And there is only one way that we enter his kingdom, and that is by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. As we mentioned once before in this sermon, our forefathers in this country had a saying, we have no king but Jesus. Is Jesus the king of your life? Have you received him as Lord? If not, you can do that right now. You can do that this very day by admitting to God that you are a sinner in need of a savior, by believing with all of your heart that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sin and that he rose again on the third day and by committing your life to fully follow him. And if you make that commitment, if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, he will save you and he will give you eternal life and you will forever be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and pray, and then we'll have a time of response. Father, thank you for uh, this word that you have given us this morning. And Lord, on this day, as we celebrate the birth of our nation, the independence of our nation, we also acknowledge our total and utter dependence upon you. Lord, not just as a nation, but individually, we have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. 
God, if there be anyone here today who does not know the true freedom that is found in Christ alone, I pray that they would come this very morning, that they would put their faith and their trust in you. Lord, this time of response that we're about to have, I give it to you. I pray that your will would be done through it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts now and that we would be obedient to whatever he is leading us to do. And it is in the mighty name of Jesus, King Jesus, that we pray. Amen.